as Danny said, I grew up here at Grace Bible Church, at least since the time that I was 12. My family moved to Bozeman in 1993, and um, I've been a part of Grace Bible Church ever since. Ryan and I were in youth group together. Uh, I was with Louise's kids as well. Uh, Tracy and I uh, were good friends through parts of that time. Um, and as Danny gave you a little bit of a sketch, I want to fill in some of those details. I don't know if Danny knows this, but my last year of high school, I was not in Bozeman. My parents decided to do a short-term mission trip, and we trundled off to Bolivia, and I spent 11 months my entire senior year of high school at a missionary school in Bolivia. And God used that experience to give me the desire to return there and do ministry. At that time, I was thinking that I wanted to be a pastor somewhere here in Montana, rural ministry, talking about the difference between little towns and humongous cities. Um, God gave me the desire to be a missionary and go cross-cultural. And so when we came back to Montana after those 11 months, um, I started studying. And I graduated here from Montana Bible College in 2005 in very distinguished company. Uh, some very good friends there. Uh, one of your professors graduated with me there, Mr. Wheelinga. About, can you tell who those people are? There's Dan right there. That's me. Uh, Brooke Harwood. You guys know Brooke? Uh, Jason and Janice Parker. Um, the other three have moved on to other parts of the country, so I don't know that you would know them, but um, good people. And some of them I'm still connected with and friends with. The biggest connection I made here, though, was with Kaylee. Uh, we got married about five months before graduation, uh, which was good, because I was kind of sweating, like, am I going to graduate from Bible college and move to the mission field by myself? Uh, God provided. So, and any of you single guys, the Lord is good. Um, from here, we went and spent two and a half years in Missouri, training with New Tribes Mission to learn how to do cross-cultural ministry. I'm going to talk about some of the aspects of that this morning. Um, but there are some important things you have to know to be a missionary. You've got to be able to learn language. You've got to know something about Bible translation. Uh, you should probably understand how worldview works. Yeah? How to get into somebody's worldview and understand it and preach accordingly to them. Uh, so we spent two and a half years there. And then in 2011, we moved with three children that were born in the meantime to Bolivia. Our plan was to move out into a native village called Urubicha and plant a church among the Guarayo people. But as God often does, he changed our direction. After we spent two years learning Spanish and the national culture, Bolivian culture, um, God moved us into another ministry. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to tell you about it because I'm really good at bunny trails and taking a long way around. So I'm actually going to show you a video that we made that will uh, make it a little more succinct if we have sound on that. 
We are Nathan and Kaylee Kelm, missionaries sent to reach the unreached in Bolivia. We work with Misión Etnos, a global partner of Ethnos 360, formerly known as New Tribes Mission. We are part of a strategic ministry focused on training Bolivian young people how to cross cultural barriers with the gospel. We live on a four-acre campus on the outskirts of Santa Cruz with 14 other staff and all of our students. Most of our students are Bolivian, but we also get candidates from Argentina, Paraguay, Chile, Brazil, and Peru. They spend a total of three years with us, living day to day right in our backyard. We teach them how to study the Bible for themselves, how to teach in a way that lays a solid foundation for the gospel, how to learn an unwritten foreign language, how to study another person's worldview and culture in order to teach scripture in a way that confronts their basic beliefs. The process of planting a church in an unreached people group is long and complex. We draw from our mission's 75-year history working in people groups around the world to give these students the best tools available for meeting that challenge. Outside of the classroom, we also give our students the opportunity to acquire practical skills like gardening, raising chickens, woodworking, and plumbing so that they can improve their own lives on the mission field as well as be a help to the people they are serving. Our living situation gives us the opportunity to interact with our students at all hours of the day. We develop friendships with them in order to disciple them in life and in ministry. Our girls also have a role to play as they spend hours with the students' children. Not only do they provide Christ-like friendship and direction in play, but the time they spend gives the parents an unhindered opportunity to focus on their studies and other responsibilities. We have been involved in this ministry for more than five years now and are excited to see our students moving out into the mission field to plant churches in unreached areas. Our involvement in this ministry is made possible by the churches, families, and individuals who support us personally. Thank you. We appreciate your support and your prayers on our behalf. All right, so that's what we do. Now, I want to talk about some particular aspects of this. Where's my mouse? Come on now. There we go. As Danny mentioned, last June, we had Forrest and Esther come and visit us. And they were an essential part of doing what we do. There's a program that we do that's, um, I'm sure they explained it to you, um, using English to help our students learn how to learn another language. And we need monolingual people that can come down from the states and help us with that. And so they were an essential part of that program for us. They were also a tremendous blessing. Uh, you guys know, um, they're, just, they're a great couple and we really enjoyed the time that we spent with them. 
That English program is an essential part of what I do. My focus in our training center is the culture and language acquisition program. In other words, I teach the students how to learn language without the aid of books, Language Institute, Rosetta Stone, dictionary, nothing. After finishing our program, they should be able to walk into a village anywhere in the world and start learning the language within a couple of weeks. And then they start writing their own books. Along the way, they study their culture. And they also start to build relationships. And as Danny mentioned, relationship is going to be an important part of what we talk about this morning. Well, look, I'm behind already. There we go. The purpose of, of all of this is to give them the tools they need to step into people's lives and do these things. We want them to preach the gospel not as outsiders, foreigners who need a translator, who don't understand the culture and worldview of the people. We want them to preach as members of the community, people who live with the people they're trying to reach and care about them. This is a process that takes time. Most missionaries spend three to six years of their ministry learning the language of the people. Time. Now, how does that influence a growing trend that we see over the last 20 years in missions? The trend of the 21st century is more and more short-term missions and fewer long-term missionaries. Now, how many of you have been on a short-term mission trip? And by that, I mean anybody that went overseas and planned to come back, right? So, I mean, we can be talking two weeks, six months, two years. If you went and your plan was to come back after a specific period of time, I consider that a short-term mission trip. Um, I'm not here to make anybody feel bad about what they did. I want us to think critically about strategy. I want us to think critically about what we do going forward. We could get into a long discussion about the huge problems of trying to reach people without understanding language, culture, and worldview. We could talk about the huge problem of using translators in ministry. We could talk about paternalism, creating dependency, stunting the growth of the local church by what we do. We could talk about the huge cost, billions of dollars each year to send young people overseas for two weeks at a time with little to no lasting benefit. But I won't, because I don't have time. You guys only gave me 30 minutes. I need about a week to actually fill this out and, right? What are we doing? What are we exporting? And does it fit in with what we believe, the ministry values that we have here? To answer that question, we need to define what is our mission? What makes missions mission at all? And hopefully everyone will agree that our mission is found in Matthew 28 is make disciples. That is what we're all about, right? 
That's what we do. Um, just to make sure that everybody is on board with this, I jumped on the NBC website and I pulled this off, one of the main pages. Discipleship is the primary emphasis of Montana Bible College. We believe it is critical that students learn the skills to disciple another man or woman and the humility to seek to be discipled themselves. Indeed, discipleship is the means to fulfill the command Jesus gave in his great commission, etc. Wonderful words. This is what we're all about. Yes? So we have to ask ourselves, what is the first step in making a disciple? What is the foundation upon which discipleship happens? One word. Relationship. Again, I went back to the website and I found this definition. Montana Bible College believes that discipleship equals directed relationship. That is a beautiful definition. There are some very specific things that you need to make disciples. You need the Word of God. And when I say the Word of God, I mean the book and the person. You need time. You need shared ministry. You need relationship. So, just a question for you guys to ponder. Does meeting once a week with somebody to talk about how you've sinned and whether or not you've done your quiet time count as discipleship? The answer is no, it does not. That is not discipleship. That may be a small part of discipleship. That may be a component in making discipleship happen. But that in itself is not discipleship. It doesn't fulfill this definition. Let's go to the master. The master discipler. What did Jesus do? I want to look at Matthew 9 for a second. Verse 9. Jesus has been doing some really cool miracles. And then it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And like Jesus laid out the gospel, it's four spiritual laws, gave him a cute bracelet with some beads on it and a little cube. No, that's not what happened at all. Verse 10, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is not an isolated event. Read the Gospels and see how many times it talks about Jesus eating with people. The Pharisees called him out on it. Think about it this way. Jesus had three years to convince people to radically change the way that they viewed who the Messiah was and what he was to do. And this is what he was doing. That's something I can get on board with. This isn't something that should make us feel bad. This should be an encouragement to us and a blessing. And I hope that it will be by the time we finish. Now, a couple of minutes ago, I showed you this photo as, as representative of my role in the training center 
and in Santa Cruz. But this is not where discipleship happens. This is knowledge transfer, right? I get up in front, I tell my students what they need to know about learning language, they write things down or do whatever they need to do, and they practice it to show me that they can actually do it, like with Forrest and Esther. But as important as the classroom is, discipleship happens somewhere else. And taking a cue from Jesus. It's the conversations that happen in these situations, the things that they see in my life, the questions that they ask, that I can really have an impact on the lives of these young men. Now, Forrest reported something different to you guys as well. Um, he told you about my habits as I move around town. Even though my ministry is focused inside the four walls of Etnos, I still have to deal with people outside. This is the market where I buy fruits and vegetables each week. And as Danny mentioned, as Forrest has mentioned, I don't just go buy vegetables. I go and I spend time talking to people. The vast majority of these people are unsaved. Bolivia, statistically, is about 12% evangelical. And that includes anybody that raised their hand and was like, oh yeah, I'm into Jesus. Okay? We are surrounded by people that need him. So I take time to chat, to be friendly. I intentionally go back to the same vendors each week. I learn about their families. They tell me about what's going on in their lives. I talk about what's going on in my life. Part of this is just Bolivian culture. As a society, they're much more relational in this way. But it's something that we can redeem for the sake of the gospel. And my purpose in this is to build relationships that lead to discipleship. What you will not find me doing in this context is preaching. I'm not waving a tract up in anybody's face, telling them what they need to know. They're all going to hell. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the other cultists do. Those guys I'll actually talk to because I can have some fantastic conversations about the personal work of Jesus in the hearing of these people that I am building relationships with, and it gives us something to talk about next week. Like, hey, remember that crazy guy that was here? Like, man, he has some weird ideas about scripture. Great foundation. It's amazing how the devil's servants provide fodder for the kingdom of God. Now, I want to specifically touch on, on one aspect of this. We keep talking about relationship, and I want to illustrate why this is so important. How many Ford guys we got in here? Wow, brother. Chevy? Oh, okay. <laughs> A little bigger contingent. Any Jeepers? Yeah? Got some nods. Nobody's willing to raise their hand. I see how it is. Listen, I am concerned about you people. You have bought into these 
car brands expecting that they're going to fulfill your desires and meet your needs. But they let you down every time. Can I take a couple of minutes to talk to you about Toyota? <laughs> Toyota is the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to me. There is nothing so faithful, so reliable as Toyota. <laughs> nothing holds its value like a Toyota. You guys are missing out. Made in USA, Toyota Tundra. Nothing else has towed a space shuttle. You want power? It's right there, baby. But the most important thing for me in my life is the fact that no matter where you go in the world, anywhere that somebody wants a rugged, capable off-road vehicle, they choose Toyota. They never brake. They're super reliable. They never leave you stranded and always get you home. When the going gets rough, the rough get Toyota. So in the world market, Toyota is king. Now, I'm sure that none of this is new to you guys. You've probably heard this before. And if not, you know, you, we can meet afterwards and I can develop this topic in a lot more detail. But it's not enough for you to simply understand this. You need to take the step of faith. Is anyone here ready to accept Toyota into their life? <laughs> Before anybody stones me, I want to make the obvious connection, what I hope is obvious. How many of you have been suddenly convinced to go and buy a Toyota? You know this stuff is true. Like, what's holding you back? The fact is that our choice of vehicle is not something that's going to change through a five-minute conversation. Right? That's ridiculous. If I really wanted to change your mind about what vehicle is best, I'm going to invite you along to live life with me, to go enjoy the wonders that Toyota has to offer. And you can see the way that's changed my life. We can go enjoy adventures. And hey, I'll even take you out so that you don't have to stay home and fix your junk. I am currently driving a Toyota, and I have my eyes on a Land Cruiser in Santa Cruz, so I can't afford a Land Cruiser in Bolivia. Anyway, these were all mine, by the way. If this is something that's true on an issue as trivial and superficial as what vehicle we purchase, why do we think that we can change the way people think about right and wrong, good and evil, the creation of the world? their final destiny in a five-minute conversation. Now, I'm not discounting the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't care what car you drive, but he does work in the hearts and lives of people. But we're talking about strategy here. If we were dependent on just the Holy Spirit and we said, you know what, we're just going to go and we're going to 
uh, just talk to anybody and everybody without relationship, you guys might as well go home. Why are you studying at Montana Bible College? You don't need hermeneutics. You don't need homiletics. You don't need discipleship skills. You don't need any of those things because the Holy Spirit's going to do the work. You're just the mouthpiece. Why did I spend weeks thinking through this topic and coming up with something to tell you guys and present if the Holy Spirit's just going to speak through me? We don't think that way in any other way of life except this one. We need to think about our strategy. If you want to change lives, spend time with people. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13, and I don't know if you've ever thought of this verse in this way before. I certainly hadn't. This was something that came to me. So if it's totally off the wall and, and off base, you can talk about it with me later. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have a noisy gong. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. When Paul talks about love here, he's talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? No. Uh, to use the words of Toby Mack and his two buddies back in the day, love is a verb. <laughs> you guys are probably too young to know DC talk very well, but they were awesome. If we follow Paul's train of thought into verse 4, we see some things about what love is. How does anybody know that these things characterize you? How does someone know that you love them? We go back to relationship. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not relationship, I am a clanging symbol. And so we need to find balance between speaking truth and loving relationships. Paul also mentions this in Ephesians 4. He's talking about the roles that God has given leaders in the church to bring up the congregation to do ministry. And he says that we grow in maturity, we grow together as a body when we speak truth in love. Balance between that relationship and truth. Has anybody here had the experience of someone speaking truth into your life with whom you did not have a good relationship? We have had that. You can see my wife's hand way back in the back. We have had people say hard things to us who hadn't spent any time with us, didn't know who we were, didn't understand the situation itself, and they were completely wrong. It's not a pleasant thing. Now, when we speak truth without a relationship, we're a clanging symbol. Right? But there's a flip side as well. If you have a relationship, but you never speak truth into it, that's just dereliction of duty. You don't understand the Great Commission. You don't understand the call to make disciples in this world. 
And so I am trying to find balance in my context of relationship and speaking truth, not leaving out either one of those things. I, another aspect of this that I would love to go into but don't have time, you've got to know where people are. The people in this market aren't just blank slates that are ready to receive the gospel. For the most part, they're animistic Catholics. They've got their old pagan beliefs from centuries and millennium. And when the Catholics showed up, the Spaniards, uh, 400 years ago or so, in Bolivia, they put a nice thin veneer of Catholicism over the top of that, and everything syncretized. Hopefully that's a term that you know from one of Scott's classes or somebody. Um, they mixed their beliefs with Catholicism. These people are cool with Jesus. I mean, they've got the biggest statue of him in the world. And I'm not kidding. It's in Cochabamba. I've been there many times. I have a really cool picture of him holding the Superman in his right hand like it's basketball. Anyway, that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> I want to introduce you to somebody else. This is my friend Carlos. He opened up a fruit truck not too far from our house, just a couple of blocks away, and he started selling fruit. Turns out he's a, he's a neighbor, and um, it was super convenient, so I started buying fruit from him. And as is my custom now, I spent time talking to him um, and his wife, and uh, we started hanging out, and eventually we start talking about spiritual things. Now, if you were to go on a short-term trip and evangelize Carlos on the street, you would walk away with a picture of this great brother in the Lord. You would come home with this awesome memory and a story of, man, I met this fruit guy in Bolivia, and it, it's so cool what he's doing. Well, because of my relationship with him, I've had the time to dig into what he believes. He's an evangelical. At least he goes to an evangelical church. He's pretty sure he's going to heaven because he doesn't drink anymore, generally. Doesn't dance at the fiestas. He goes to church regularly. He pays his tithes, tithe, and he takes communion. He's saved, right? He's cool. He's not somebody that you're going to change short term. This is a relationship that is going to take years for me because I have tried to talk to him about, hey, let's do a Bible study. And he holds me at an arm length. His wife actually is, is a lot more receptive, but obviously I'm not going to start a Bible study with his wife. Um, so something to think about. Now, I don't want anybody here to get the idea that I'm against short-term mission trips. By no means. I am a full-time missionary on the field because of a short-term mission trip. Uh, as we talked about with Forrest and Esther, I needed their help for three weeks, and that's it. Okay? But I want you to think about some things um, as, as we look at short-term mission. I want you to go primarily as a learner. Short-term missions should never be to go and save the world. It should be a learning experience. Go see what it's like to live in another culture, recognizing that you're getting very 
tiny glimpse of what it's like, and things are a lot more complicated than they seem. Go as a learner. Secondly, this is critical. Go to support long-term discipleship ministry. If you're going to go overseas and spend that money and that time, make sure that what you're going to is actually part of a long-term strategy that makes a difference in people's lives for the gospel. Third, be a blessing. It's amazing how many people go and they do a short-term mission trip and they have no idea of how much work and energy and money goes into it for the missionary that's receiving them. Go and be a blessing. Be an encouragement. That was a huge thing for us with Forrest and Esther, just having them in our home, spending time with them. And then return and let it affect the way that you support missionaries and the way that you may go again. Learn from it and change. Now on the other side, we've got this cool word in Spanish, aprovechar. It's like take advantage. And it's, it's the Bolivian motto. Like that's in any situation, you need to just aprovechar. Get whatever, whatever you can out of a situation. You guys all have relationships with people. You're spending time with believers and unbelievers. There we go. Now you can actually see the whole thing. Are you using that time to speak about spiritual things? Or is it just football? Is it just skiing? Is it just work? Take advantage of the time. Redeem the time. Redeem the relationships. And use them as an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. That's where change is going to happen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to talk about some very important things. And Lord, I want to thank you first and foremost for Jesus and the relationship that he has with us. This is not some cold religion where we are required to do and serve to gain your favor. Father, thank you for bringing us into this relationship with you. Lord, please help us as we seek to bring others along. Please give us faithfulness. Give us boldness. Lord, you've given us opportunities aplenty. Give us boldness to make the most of those relationships that we have. Father, I just thank you for these young men and women who are passionate about serving you. And I just pray that their time here at Montana Bible College would be a blessing to them and give them the tools they need to bless others. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.